It was a shooting gallery at BMO Field on Wednesday night, but not a single shot landed for Toronto FC, compounding their recent frustrations and giving us plenty to talk about on this week's Footy Talks podcast. My name is Mitchell Tierney, and this week on the show, we will take a quick look at all three Canadian MLS clubs, chat the start of the Voyagers Cup, and our usual Canadian soccer headlines. To do all that from Sporting News and Canada FC on Sirius XM Canada Talks, Rudy Schuler is back on the show. Rudy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, no problem. And uh, I guess the the best place to start is what I mentioned off the top. Toronto FC's nil-nil draw with DC United. A record-setting nil-nil draw in the sense that they had 35 shot attempts on target. Not a single one of them was able to find its way past Bill Hamid, though. So they become the the dubious title of being the club with the most shot attempts um, to not actually score a goal in a game, which, uh, I mean... it was basically like that the entire game other than the first minute where DC had a goal call back for offside, but Toronto FC were uh, all over DC, had all kinds of possession. I think in the end they had close to 70% possession for, for the match, which obviously is is fairly dominant. But in a time where they've really struggled to score goals, especially without Josie Altidore, it was, uh, it was another frustrating match for Toronto FC and their fans. Um, what did you uh, make of the game and uh, kind of what it, it says about the season to date for Toronto FC. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously, I'm sure, and we've heard from the, the team now, that it was a frustrating night for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't see how it could have been when you get 35, 36 shots on target. Uh, not on target, sorry. Uh, 30, shot attempts and then 12 mm-hmm. on target. Bill Hamid saves them. Uh, some of them are good. Most of them weren't that great. Um, but yeah, it's not just the shots. I'm looking at the stats here and, it, you know, uh, passing accuracy was 90% for 75. Uh, num- the, the sheer number of passes was 732 to 302. Wow. <laughs> completed passes, yeah. So they more than doubled the completed passes in DC. Um, in the attacking half was 579 to 141, so on and so forth, right? Uh, final third, 333 to 50. And to me, that's the one that stands out the most. Um, TFC completed 333 passes, or sorry, attempted 333 passes in the final third. Yeah. <laughs> They, they, they and they made 83 percent of them, so that's a very good percentage, especially the final third. You, you know, if you if you're hovering anywhere above 70 in the final third, you're having a good day, and mm-hmm. somehow came away with zero goal. I mean, that to me is just if you play this game, you know, 10 more times, I think TFC wins all 10 of them. To be quite honest, um, that's not to say there weren't some fundamental issues that uh, you know we've seen in this team over this face this entire season and even into the last season that uh, showed themselves in this game. But uh, I do think that a lot of it was just being snake-bitten. Um, and you got to give credit to D.C. for, you know, people joke about them parking the bus, but that's exactly what they did, and they did it very mm-hmm. well. They knew, uh, you know, they're coming in to BMO, uh, a very hard place to play where TSC likes to possess the ball a lot. Um, and they're, they're coming off a Sunday game in D.C., playing Wednesday, and then having to go to Houston to play on Saturday. So three games in six days, just a ridiculous schedule for them. So they're looking at this game like, hey, you know, let's just get anything we can get out of this game and pack up and leave town because, uh, you know, there's no point trying to go toe-to-toe with a team that uh, in TFC that, that likes to put on the show at home. Uh, you know, ideally that's what they want to do, right? So mm-hmm. um, they did what they had to do. And even when, you know, they brought their big attacking trio on in the second half, it was still more of the same. It was, you know, they brought uh, Wayne Rooney and, and, and Acosta 
and uh, Paul Areola in. And you think, okay, now they're going to open up a little bit more. But they just did more of the same thing. The <laughs> second half was pretty much the same. It was, I, I think they only gave up 15 shots rather than 20. <laughs> you know, so it was it was slightly improved uh, for D.C., but it was still more of the same, uh, get 11 men behind the ball. But the threat of the counterattack was much bigger with those uh, three names on the, on, the, on the field, right? So um, to me, it looked like a team that was still trying to uh, figure out its identity in terms of, you know, when Josie Altador is out, Pozuelo is the man. But mm-hmm. when he's triple teamed, who else is going to step up? Right? Jordan Hamilton didn't really. Uh, I mean, he forced a couple of good saves and hit the crossbar. Uh, but he really should have had at least a goal, if not two, in this game. Yeah. Um, and then who are the other? Who are the the, the secondary and tertiary threats? Uh, you know, Jonathan Osorio has established himself as a secondary threat. He wasn't much of one, and he got taken off. Uh, I think Nick Delion uh, should not play on the left hand side. He's a he's a right hand mm-hmm. right uh, right sided player. Um, a very good right-sided player, in my opinion. But he somehow got stuck on the left. And you could see uh, he hesitated a lot to put balls in the box uh, on his off foot. Uh, and when Justin Morrow came in, it was a lot more fluid and, and natural. But uh, to me, there was a lot of confusion in, 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 in the final third, even though, they, as I mentioned, uh, you know, they, they made a lot of their passes and, and they seemed to know what they wanted to do. They mm-hmm. just couldn't execute. And I, I do think that if they continue to play that way um, throughout the season, things will get better for them. But um, that's not taken away from the fact that it was very poor in the final third in terms of finishing and, and, and really having a killer instinct against a team that really had no, no, no uh, desire to, to actually play soccer rather than just like sit behind the ball. So they had to be disappointed. But, uh, you know, I think performance-wise, there's a lot to take from it going forward. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, I, I don't think they're that far away from becoming a team that can take advantage of the touches of, of games. Yeah, you mentioned the the eighty three percent pass accuracy in the final third. Uh, I think that was the number, and yeah, that's. I mean, you can look at that two ways. Obviously, you can look at that as as they were able to keep the ball very well and were able to make a lot of the passes they wanted to make. But at the same time, as you kind of mentioned, that killer instinct, there seemed to be a bit of a lack of creativity, and it's obviously difficult to to do that against a team. Uh, who has 11 players behind the ball, and there's not going to be many gaps or, or many opportunities. But other than Pozuelo, I mean, it, it looked like there were so many plays where they just kind of switch sides and quick little layoffs, but no real penetration or dangerous chances into the box itself. And, uh, I mean, Greg Vanny mentioned it after the game. This is a team that still probably needs more attacking firepower and uh, I think this was a game that really demonstrated that in the sense that so many of the pieces are there and uh, you know the ability to retain possession and even to some extent the finishing I know Jordan Hamilton had a uh, had a bit of an off night but we've seen uh, you know when he can get the ball in good spots, he he is able to to usually finish them, and certainly Josie Altidore is. But uh, th- there seems to be at least a little bit of uh, of another creative player missing from Toronto FC, and um, we know they decided to stand pat at the at the deadline and not move for uh, another player. You know that's a, a debatable decision, but uh, th- this game certainly seemed to be calling for a- another technician out there on the field, and uh, Toronto doesn't really have that right now in in you know on their depth chart yeah you know what the game felt like to me um if you think back to i think it was 2016 mm-hmm. uh away at san jose when san jose got two red cards so yeah. basically it was just siege mentality where tfc was in there obviously they had a two-man advantage they were in their final third the entire game basically and ended up losing the game 
um, because there wasn't enough creativity. It was all whipping crosses in the box. Um, you know, and this is when they had, you know, they had Jovinko and, and, and other players with them. So it wasn't like there were, there was a, a lack of attacking talent on the field. It's just, they felt, it felt a lot like that game. And to me, this whole season kind of feels uh, like a mixture of, well, so far it feels like a mixture of 2015 and 2016, um, where you can see TFC, there's a lot good going on there. Uh, they're well-rested because they had a, a, a full off-season for the first time in three years. A lot of the same pieces are still there. Uh, some good pieces have been added. Uh, but they are still one or two pieces away from breaking these types of defenses down. Now, to their credit, they didn't give up a goal um, mm-hmm. on a counterattack uh, or two goals. I can't remember exactly what that, that San Jose game ended. I just remember yeah, they ended up losing it. Yeah, which is just ridiculous. <laughs> but um, that's neither here nor there. It's just the, the comparison was kind of the same. It, it felt like that kind of game, right? Uh, where the one team just had no desire to do anything. Uh, of course, San Jose, that was forced upon them. Um, and TFC was kind of knocking the ball around from left to right, getting into the box at times. But when they do, you know, there's three, four, five guys in front of them. Mm-hmm. And whenever, whenever Pozuelo was anywhere near the top of the box, he had three guys on him. Now, Generally, that would be that would mean that there's three fewer defenders on everybody else, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's, I mean, obviously that's math, right? But <laughs> um, for whatever reason, the rest of his teammates weren't getting themselves into opening positions uh, to take advantage of that. You know, uh, that that's something that I think uh, you know, definitely an Osorio can help. I think he had an off game because that's generally his instinct is to uh, to exploit those open spaces. Uh, and get himself in good positions, and that's how he gets his goals and assists. Um, but it's not just him. I think Marky Delgado had a, I think on the defensive end, he had a pretty good night in, in, in terms of his core responsibilities of, of, mm-hmm. of breaking up plays and, and, and supporting Michael Bradley. Uh, but he also had a lot of space going forward, and I think his decision-making in the final third was poor. Uh, he was taking too long on the ball. Um, again, I mentioned Nick DeLeon. He's playing on the left when he sh- really shouldn't be because he's not as good with both feet as he is with his right. Uh, but I do think that, you know, positively, I think Oro had arguably one of his best attacking games for TFC in, in, in a red uniform, um, but it wasn't enough, right? You can't have just one guy, in this case, uh, Alejandro Pozuelo, uh, providing everything. And, you know, as good as he is, and he very, very nearly did, um, you know, the rest of the MLS, they, they're already kind of caught on to that fact now. They're not taking anyone by surprise. So they, they kind of know that they can swarm him. And without, especially without Josie on the field, there's no real threats. If, if you know, if Osorio has an off day or if Justin Morrow isn't going 90 minutes and so on and so forth. Um, so I, I think it's a lot of decision making that has to, that, that has been poor. But it, yeah, the tools aren't there. You know, they need another wide player who can. Not just whip crosses in because they had what twenty nine crosses to five, um, so they were getting crosses in. Mm-hmm. But it's not just that; it's also trying to beat the man down the line, so it's not predictable. Um, again, I think Aro did a good job of that of mixing up crosses and, and and trying to take players on. But you need someone on the left side that does that too. Um, and then you also need someone to play either above or below Pozuelo, who can combine with him and take some of the pressure off. And again, we always keep coming back to Alder. That's that man. But yeah. when he's out and he's he's out often. Uh, you need someone else to uh, relieve that pressure. And unfortunately for TFC, Jordan Hamilton hasn't been doing it. Yes, he's he's had a pretty good season, but he hasn't been doing it consistently. And uh, the other options are Terrence Boyd, who has literally done nothing in terms of uh, you know attacking. 
mm. and Ayo Akinola, who's no, no longer available because he's at the U20 World Cup. So, um, unfortunately, they, they stood pat, as you mentioned. Uh, they have to wait until, I think, July 8th or something like that when the, the transfer window reopens. Between now and then, they have to figure it out because uh, there's going to be a lot more games like this, I think, because now the league has figured out how to how to uh, how to play against them, especially at BMO, and there's going to be a lot more frustrating nights if they don't uh, if they don't take advantage of, of of having a lot of possession. Yeah, if if there is one positive though, you mentioned it briefly. It's the defensive play in this game, and we you brought up that San Jose game, and uh, that's kind of been the template for frustrating losses for Toronto FC, where they have all yeah. this possession and all this time in the uh, in the attacking half, but then concede a couple of counterattack goals. The expected goals for DC in this game was zero point one four, which is probably <laughs> yeah. the lowest I've seen this season from any team in MLS. Uh, we we mentioned they had that chance that was offside in like the opening minute, but after that they barely got a sniff at goal. And, and I really liked what Toronto FC did defensively in the sense that the second they lost the ball, they were really pressing and trying to win it back. And most of the time they did, and they did so especially out wide. And th- those are the positions that they've been really exploited in uh, these past couple weeks. Is those wide attacks where uh, the team gets in behind and then everyone scrambles back into the middle and, and a cross comes in and they get scored on. That's really been their defensive frailty. But uh, from a defensive standpoint, I thought it was a very impressive performance. And uh, if there's something to build on, it's it's certainly that and the way they were able to quickly stifle and, and put out any kind of attacking intention DC had. Obviously, that wasn't the main point of DC's uh of DC's game, but it is, you know, something that this club can, can look at moving forward and, and say that they are improving in that regard. Yeah. Any, I mean, anytime you can, you can pitch a shutout against a team that's scored a lot of goals like DC has, mm-hmm. um, when you're TFC, who's given up a lot of goals already this season, um, that's, you know, that's something you can take forward. I do think that Michael Bradley had one of his best games this year. He was all over the field. Uh, you mentioned the wide, the wide areas. He was helping out with those, uh, with those wide defensive areas. Whenever, mm-hmm. you know, whenever DC decided to head down the flanks, you know, it was always whoever was on the flank first, and then Michael Brown the second. You know, it, it seemed like he was all over the park. Um, and then I also think that having Drew Moore back there, uh, finally, that that's it can't be overstated. You know, it, it, we talk about how uh, Josie Altidore's absence affects the attack. Well, Drew Moore's absence affects the defense because yeah. there's no better organizer back there. Uh, I do think that Quentin Westberg helps as well, uh, and that he, I think he's a bit of a better organizer than Alex Bono. But um, Drew Moore being back there, I, I, it benefits everybody. And the, the one person I noticed that it benefited the most was uh, Eric Zavaleta, who I think to me had the best game of the season of mm-hmm. the season uh, this year so far. Um, he was, you know, Zavaleta. Got to come under a lot of criticism, and, and some of it's fair, some of it's unfair. Uh, but he's definitely had a downturn since 2017, when I think that was his best uh, career season. Um, but to me, in this game on Wednesday, it was it was it kind of it kind of harkened back to that, where he was just he was confident. You know, he was he was running down plays. He was he was confident in the air. Uh, there was one play where uh, the ball went over the top to Wayne Rooney, and here comes Zabaleta out of nowhere and just like. Heads yeah. it out. If he doesn't get if he doesn't play. get that ball, Wayne Rooney has a you know a free shot on a goal basically. Uh, so yeah, uh, it, to me, just having Drew Moore beside him to direct traffic and to you know to 
I'm sure there's some positive reinforcement going on there, and, and quite frankly, negative reinforcement if need be. That's what Drew Mort does, right? He, he he talks to to his back line, and not just back line. Him and Michael Bradley are in constant communication, so they're you know co-marshalling everything uh, defensively. And when you have both of them on the field at the same time, I think that's when TFC really thrives defensively. Um, so I know that you're not going to be able to get Drew Moore for you know every single game for the rest of the year for 90 minutes, but obviously it has to be a priority to be able to get him out of the field as much as possible. Um, and then maybe in the transfer window, look to find someone who is a like-for-like replacement for him uh, because obviously he's 35 years old. His best days are behind him. And you know as you get older, you injuries are a lot harder to come come back from as as he's already seen this year so um you know i'm not writing him off just yet but it, 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 it in fact i'm complimenting him the fact that the team looks so much better defensively uh I, it, but again it's not just him i think it's a it, it was a combination of of drew moore being back which to me was the the key michael bradley uh playing some of his best soccer in, in, for tfc in, in a couple of years because he's been well rested and then of course uh, i think Westberg is uh, he gives a little bit of a different dynamic in the back there uh, than Alex Bono does. So uh, you know, all three of them uh, combining together, I think it's 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 good it's good news for TSD. See how much we can keep them on the field if you're if you're Greg Vanny. But um, yeah, it, it's something to definitely take take hold of and, and, and learn some lessons from because uh, shutouts are important, especially at home. And TSD's been giving up a lot of goals lately. Yeah, certainly, um, and. and- Toronto FC are, of course, back in action tomorrow. They play Real Salt Lake uh, in Sandy, Utah, so they are on the road uh, in what has traditionally been one of the more difficult trips in yeah. uh, in MLS. Um, they have, you know, this is the final game of their, their five games in 15 stretch, um, and it's very mixed results lately. I mean, two wins in the last eight is certainly not where they would have wanted to be after uh, an excellent start to the season um but still you know not not on the worst pace but this game seems to be you know in some ways a pretty important one in, in that sense it's bookending a a pretty hectic stretch for them and one uh, that that hasn't necessarily gone the way they would have wanted as i mentioned um especially you know kind of dropping a little bit back in the eastern conference race in the sense that they lost and drew uh, against two of the top teams in the east at home um so so yeah you'd think this one's pretty important especially you know you have the gold cup coming up this summer and and you're going to want to bank points right now i think uh, at least stay reasonably well above the the red playoff line so that when the the bradleys maybe even josie altador and then all your canadians as well depart for uh, their various camps you you have have some points in the bank that you can work with um, while you, you know, work with the replacement players and and potentially some of the new signings that you bring in. Yeah. Um, if you were to look towards this RSL match at the beginning of the month, I would have said, you know, they probably were just thrown out whoever, you know, mm-hmm. given a rest to the players because, uh, as you mentioned, that uh, Rio Tinto Stadium has been kind of a horror show for them <laughs> over the years. <laughs> you know, uh, some of the worst TSC performances have come at that, at that ground. Um, and yeah, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know what it is. The altitude is it? I don't know. Not no charter flights in and out. Sorry, no, <laughs> no commercial flights in and out of there. They have to charter. I don't know what it is, but there, there's some kind of mentality going on where whenever they play at Rio Tinto, it's just it's just awful. Um, but as you mentioned, because of the way recent results have gone, and they and they kind of thrown away uh, the last two home games, they have to get something out of this. And I, I do think that Greg Vanny's going to look at this and, and say, you know what? It's time to put the best best foot forward because after this game, they have an eight-day break. 
right? Yeah. I, I believe it's not till the, the following Sunday yeah. um, that they play at home against San Jose. I think it is. I'm not looking at the schedule right now, but I think that's what it is. That is correct. Um, so, yeah, uh, to me, it's like, well, yes, you're coming off five games in 15 days, and, and this is probably one of the games that you look at and say, well, if you're planning for it, eh, if you can get anything out of it, it's great. But the fact that those five games in 15 days didn't go very well, especially at home, and RSL isn't a particularly a good team right now, and, and you know maybe right for the picking as well. And maybe you have to go for it, you know, and and just kind of deal with it, and 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 hope that you know there's no other injuries pile up or anything like that, because there's going to be a lot of recuperi- time, recuperation time, uh, recovery time after this game. So um, if you can do that with three points in hand, then I think the mentality going towards the Gold Cup break is a lot better than if you go. It's another loss. Right, um, mm-hmm. so you know we saw that Josie Altador traveled, so maybe that's a good thing. Um, we saw that Drew Moore traveled, so maybe he starts again. I, if I'm Greg Vanny, I'm putting my best eleven out there, uh, unless there's like real issues that we don't know about in certain players. Mm-hmm. Like obviously, if Josie Altador can't play, but then if he couldn't play, why is he on the plane? Right, so um, unless there's something really keeping them off the field, I think you got to go for it because uh, I think. It's it, this could be a turning point in your season. I, it's obviously it's way too early to say must win this that and the other, but to me it's one of those 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 kind of turning point games where you can you can kind of set the table for the rest of the, uh, the you know the rest of the stretch until at least the Gold Cup, right? So uh, to me, it, I think they they should go for it, and I, I honestly think they're going to. Well, speaking of hectic schedules, the Canadian Premier League uh, they've mm-hmm. they've st- made their maiden voyage into the Voyagers Cup uh, their first couple of games you know with with those initial entrants in, in the first round of this tournament and uh, pretty interesting uh, first round so far I mean we've seen yeah. certainly the League One and PLSQ teams uh, make a very good statement for themselves AS Blanville uh, they had a nil-nil draw at home against York 9 where they hit a crossbar and, and then uh, against Halifax Wanderers uh Von Azuri, uh, a late penalty for them or for Halifax uh, gives them a 3-2 win after Vaughn kind of controlled a lot of moments in that game um, kind of some calls for expanding the tournament a little bit after how well these these sides have shown uh, what did you make of, of kind of the first interleague meeting for the Canadian Premier League and what that said maybe about the, uh, the league itself and I guess both leagues or all three leagues in general and the, the state of this tournament yeah, I mean it was it was a good advertisement for a pool of players in the tournament in in the country, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you expect whenever a fully professional team goes up against a semi pro team or, or whatever you want to call League One Ontario and PLSQ, uh, they're not it's a step down, right? Um, yeah. But they're able to hang. They were able to hang, and 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 um, that doesn't really surprise me because obviously the uh, a lot of the Premier League clubs are made up of of the best of those those so-called lower leagues. So there's not going to be much of a, a gap yet. I think as time goes on, uh, the gap might widen a bit uh, as, as the CPL establishes itself and, and, and figures out what players are good for its level and what players aren't. Um, but as of right now, you know, there's, there's not much of a gap uh, between, say, some of the more run-of-the-mill CPL teams and, and uh, you know, the better uh, League One Ontario and, and, and PLSQ mm-hmm. teams. So... Uh, I'm not sure if they want to look at this and say, well, maybe they should expand the tournament. I do think that the Canadian Soccer Association, they're being very deliberate with how what, with what they do with the tournament. 
um, they want to keep things kind of close and, and slow, kind of a slow build. Obviously, they just added seven teams from CPL, but you can't not. But in terms of adding other teams from outside of the professional pyramid, mm. I think they want to keep it. They want to keep their standards high. Uh, yeah. The only reason that uh, League One Ontario and PLSQ are actually in the tournament because they they meet uh, a preset of uh, of standards that are that are set by the CSA. Uh, that's why you don't see uh, the BC Premier. I can't remember what the, their, the name of their their big league is, uh, or the, or the AMSL in, in in Alberta. That's why you don't see those uh, clubs participating yet because they don't meet those standards. So I do think that uh, they're trying to keep that bar high, and and they're challenging these these lower level teams to meet that bar rather than to just get in and you know, possibly get slaughtered by these teams by the, by the professional teams right so mm-hmm. i do think that I, I, there, there's a, a method to that madness um i do think that they, they ultimately want to expand it even more and eventually make it a more of an open type of cup so that fully amateur teams are are able to kind of work their way in at, at a, an even earlier stage but for right now they want to keep it tight right so um it was a good advertisement that, for me for the for, you know, for the tournament itself. Uh, I do think that uh, some of the CPL teams have a lot of thinking to do in okay. terms of uh, what they you know their strategies and and and, and how they approach this game. I, I know I'm right. thinking about York Nine especially. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be a, a good couple of second legs. Um, the funniest thing is that of the three of the three Canadian Championship matchups that we had in the midweek. The only one that was, you know, a, a comprehensive victory was between the two CPL clubs. You know, with mm-hmm. uh, with Calgary, with Calgary uh, defeating Pacific two 0 So, and, right. and that was it, it. Could have been more than that, right? So, um, that was the only dominant kind of performance uh, of the of the six teams that were in action. So, uh, to me, it's great. You know, this is this is one more kind of notch in the belt of, of this is why we need to expand the tournament. This is why we need to expand, uh, you know. Prof- domestic professional soccer in the country this, it, it, everything is kind of pointing to this is exactly why why this is all done so uh, it, it's more proof in the pudding that Canadians can play soccer and, and, and put on exciting performances and all they need is an opportunity so both the CPL and the Canadian Championship is giving that opportunity um, now you know I'm looking forward to seeing more of this and, and, and when, when these teams go up higher and they have to play the MLS teams see what they can do but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what's going on between now and then first but uh yeah, I'm pleasantly. I wouldn't say surprised, but I'm very pleased by what I've seen so far. Yeah, this has definitely been the most, you know, you know, a good start to what I think is going to be the most exciting Voyagers Cup ever. Um, especially, you know, that first Canadian Premier League against Ottawa Fury meeting is going to have all kinds of <laughs> intrigue <laughs> yeah. to it. That one's going to be great. And then, obviously, uh, whether it's this year or in the future, the first time a Canadian Premier League team matches up against an MLS side, uh, that's going to be massive for the league. So uh, definitely add some excitement there. And I did want to very quickly talk about Cavalry, who you mentioned, uh, the only comprehensive win of this uh, of the tournament so far, beating Pacific. And they've really stood out for me so far and I guess I shouldn't be too surprised I think one of the advantages so far has been teams who kind of already have a bit of an identity and and a history in the sense that you know coming from the Foothills Foothills program they already had with uh, Tommy Wielden Jr. and and kind of be able to transition a bunch of those players into the into the first team there and we've seen Forge you know they had a bit of a slow start but now are picking things up again and they had the the Sigma connection and obviously FC Edmonton 
um, who haven't played very much lately, but when they have, they've looked pretty good being a previously existing club. So um, the the fact that Cavalry have looked very good, I guess, isn't all that surprising, but certainly so far they've been uh, the class of the league and uh, very quickly looking like they're going to be the uh, uh, one of the clubs to progress the next round in this competition as well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to be said for cohesiveness, right? As you mentioned, um, mm. especially given the the hectic start to the season, it's, it's just been a ridiculous uh, bunch of fixtures and fixture congestion. <laughs> and it's something I tweeted the other day. It's basically, they they need to look at this, right? Because mm. uh, I, I do think that uh, it's unfair to have to play so many games right out of the gate for teams that are you know, other than a, a couple of examples, teams that are brand new. And, and still trying to find themselves and, and, and figure out who can play at this level, who can't, mm-hmm. and, and figure out their own identity and, 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 and what their place in the league. Uh, yeah, they're coming out the gate. Either. Well, that's what I mean, right? And yeah. Some teams are, are not deep on purpose. Like, I don't know what Pacific only has. They only have 20 players signed uh, when they can have 23. Maybe that's a salary cap issue. I don't know. We don't know what the salary cap is. Mm-hmm. Um, but for whatever reason, they're very stubbornly sticking to 20 players signed uh, when really they need more. Um, but that's a kind of a roundabout way to say that. I, I think that uh, even if they're not the most talented team, uh, Cavalry, uh, their cohesiveness has has helped them a lot because uh, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of these players are familiar with each other. They played alongside each other uh, in the lead up to this uh, to this uh, Premier League kickoff. Um, they played under their coach, and they know each other, and and they know what they can expect from each other, and just having that familiarity is a huge leg up especially when you're coming out of the game having out of the gate having to play four or five games in in three weeks or four weeks or whatever the case may be at that point once you finish those games the spring standing is it's it's almost done right Mm -hmm. like the spring season is such a sprint so in in that situation uh just the fact that you know uh what you're going to get out of your team and i honestly think that forge on paper is is a more talented team than, than cavalry um, but Calvary's cohesiveness and, and their identity has helped them through uh, you know what is a, a hectic spring season so far. And uh, they've only played three games, but they're the only team that has nine points. So um, good for them. You know they have they have games in hand on on the two teams that are directly below them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they'll you know that'll give them some breathing room as well. Um, but yeah, it, it, to me, it's going to be hard to catch them uh, toward by the end of the, the spring season so they may have already wrapped it up um, and and uh, to me that all has to do with the fact that they are a, a team that's familiar with themselves uh, and 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 the other teams aren't so much so uh, good on them you know I'm not calling them uh, an unskilled team by any any stretch of the imagination but I do think that uh, they had a, a one huge advantage and fair play to them for taking it because uh, other teams could have done that the same thing but they did so um, we'll see how it all shakes out yeah, we will. And as we've talked about, another exciting week for Canadian soccer. Uh, adding to that fact is the fact that Canada, for the first time since 2013, qualified for the Under-17 uh, World Cup in Brazil. Uh, it was originally supposed to be hosted in Peru, but uh, they couldn't meet the standards. So Brazil is where Canada will head to play that tournament after a penalty shootout win over Costa Rica in the quarterfinals that got them there. Uh, they got thrashed by the U.S. in in the semifinals, so uh, didn't progress further than that in the competition, but uh, there was a lot of squad rotation in that game as they kind of got a look at, at their full squad and all the players that traveled. Um, 
we were talking a bit before it's it's kind of difficult to handicap under 17 because it's you know it's a level that doesn't necessarily translate all that well to the future but uh, nonetheless I mean this this has to be seen as a positive if even because of the age group and because of the sense that you know birth wise a lot of these players will be 24 come 2026 when Canada hosts the World Cup so at least you'd hope a couple of them will uh, take advantage of this opportunity and and you know use it as a stepping stone to push them themselves into that senior national team conversation yeah I mean that's something that you always want to expose uh, the elite players in the country to other elite players around the world. That's mm-hmm. how you get better, right? Um, as you mentioned, it's not the greatest barometer for for future success. Uh, I, whenever uh, whenever I talk about the U17s, I always bring up uh, Mexico winning the whole thing in, in I believe in 2011, and they had four players that moved on to the the full squad. So, uh, yeah, you know, it it it, it it's a good kind of a feel-good story uh, and if one or two of these players can can really allow really use this to propel themselves to bigger and better things I think that's mm-hmm. all you really want to ask out of the team you know you're not going to see 11 12 players from this roster starting for Canada in 2026 it's just not going to happen it, it, that's just the nature of of teenage soccer especially that that age where physical differences make a huge difference uh, in terms of on the field uh, results so um if you can get one or two players that kind of uses as a springboard to bigger, better things, I think that will be considered a success for Canada. If you can get one or two of these guys to be in a starting lineup in 2026 in, in wherever the first game is played in Toronto, Vancouver, not Vancouver, Toronto, Edmonton, or, or Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, great. It's a great job. A job well done. Um, but it's not something to get overly excited about in the macro sense. But absolutely, cheer on the boys and, and, and hope they do a you know they 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 make a good case for themselves in in, in the World Cup. But uh, the bigger picture is that this is more about um, kind of sorting the diamonds from the rough, and uh, hopefully a couple of diamonds can come from this this, this group. And I, I think we already know who those diamonds are, but uh, you never know. You, you know, it's a long time between now and 2026. Yeah, I'll mention some of the players who I, I kind of see as diamonds. Although again. Um, it's it's always hard to handicap. Uh, another thing we were talking about is the 2011 and 2013 rosters for Canada the last time they made the World Cup and the fact that Samuel Piat's the only player that's really transitioned into a full-time uh, position with the national team. Almost every one of those players otherwise have, uh, you know, really fallen out of the picture when it comes to the senior national team. So uh, you never really know who, which of these guys are, are going to progress in their game and and really be stay national team relevant, although I do think the Canadian Premier League will help a lot of them in that sense. Uh, we'll give them a next step. But Jaden Nelson's really the, the A prospect on this Canadian team. Uh, we saw him, uh, I think he had five goals during the course of the competition and just really dominant. I mean, uh, you never want to fully make the comparison, but he does have a lot of Alfonso Davies in him. Um, not as physically good, but certainly on the ball and, and speed-wise, he's a very similar player. Uh, maybe even a better shooter too, which is something to watch in the future. Just a really, really good player. And it's that's been the case at Generation Adidas, all kinds of different levels. We've even, even seen him play in the, the USL as well, uh, USL League One with with Toronto FC too. So it's it's been pretty impressive. Uh, and then otherwise, the Vancouver prospects really impressed as well. Cameron Habibula, uh, a player who's so good on the ball. I mean, pretty small. So uh, 
you know, physical physical gifts are something that really can set players apart at U17. Uh, he doesn't necessarily have those, but uh, in the sense that you know, being bigger than other players, but it didn't really matter. Uh, he was he was able to drift through midfields pretty easily and and led the team in assists, so he was pretty impressive as well. Uh, and yeah, a lot of white caps on this team, so they're kind of for me they've been for a little bit right now the the academy to watch. Um, in terms of producing players for for the future of the national team, so we'll see we'll see what happens there. But l- let's talk about the Whitecaps in general. Um, we, we're going to do a quick update for both of the other Canadian teams in MLS, and um, things have been going better for them recently. I mean, obviously a very tough start to the season where it took them some time to find uh, some cohesiveness with all the the turnover that happened. But seems like uh, Mark DeSantos has settled on a starting eleven. And we've seen some very good performances from them, particularly defensively, um, which is you know certainly relevant for Canadian national team fans because a lot of those pieces of that defense are, of course, Canadians. Yeah, um, I think that's whenever you kind of overhaul a team the way that Marco Santos has, uh, the first thing you kind of in, instill in your new players and in and, and new club is how to be defensively cohesive. I mean, that's kind of the general wisdom of coaching right is that you, you can't really get the attacking pieces right away you know everyone's looking for attackers that you know we mentioned that with the tfc segment everyone's looking mm-hmm. for these game-breaking attacking players so they're at a premium but what you can do is you can instill a you know a, a, a system and a formation and and kind of the tactics that keeps you in games and and that's what vancouver has had um they've been very very good defensively i'm just looking here at they've uh Yes, they got 15 goals against, uh, but I think a lot of that was had to do with the the early the early season woes. Uh, mm-hmm. I think since then they, they they've really clamped things down. Um, they only gave up one to Atlanta in, in the midweek, and that was a penalty. Uh, although a lot of that had to do with uh, Maxime Cripo's, uh heroics. It doesn't matter, you know. He's part of the team, so mm-hmm. um, the fact that he's able to stand out. And Daniil Henry is, seems to be a, a weekly player of the week, uh, either on the actual player of the week or on the on the reserves uh, list for MLS. Um, you know, it, it kind of goes on and on. I, I think that they they are very stout defensively, and and, and um, they're very hard to play against. And then, you know, they're not going to give up a lot of goals now. And I think that's what Mark DeSantos is preaching. It's like you know what, they don't have the best attacking talent right now. They have some good pieces, but they they haven't quite put it together yet yep. but what you can do is you can be hard to play against and um that'll keep you in the games and and, and as soon as you know an inwan bomb or or uh, um you know freddie montero whoever the case may be on, on the attacking side of the ball um can start putting things together more consistently they've already got that base of defensiveness kind of instilled in them so you know instead of a one nil loss maybe it's a one one draw or going forward it's it's a one nil win or whatever the case may be and we've already started seeing some of those um, but it's to me, it's, it's it's another step in the process that Marco Santos is trying to make. And honestly, if they can stay defensively stout, stout uh, there's no reason why they can't ch- challenge for a playoff spot this year. There's seven teams that are going to make it. Uh, a lot of the teams aren't very good <laughs> in, the, in in either conference. There's, right. You know, the, you have the stratification on both sides. You know, two or three very good teams, and both the East and the West. And then there's a lot of mushy middle. Uh, Vancouver's. Right, right in there with the, the, the rest of the mushy middle. Um, they're not an awful team. They're not the Colorado Rapids, um, thankfully for them. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're, they're, they can definitely compete with, with uh, you know, most of the West. So uh, 
to me, I think they're they're well on their way to becoming a better team. Uh, this is you know just another step along the way, and I, you know I think Marco Santos has a plan, and this is part of it. So uh, hopefully we're going to see uh, you know some more attacking pieces added again. That everybody wants those, um, but it's very encouraging to see the likes of Daniel Henry and Maxime Cropo anchor a very very good defensive team in MLS because as you mentioned, uh, that can only bode well for Canada going forward. Yeah, it's 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 certainly the thing I've been watching for with Vancouver this season, and and very much a positive for the national team uh, across Canada. The the top team in Canada so far this year has been the Montreal Impact, um, kind of surprisingly, but they've been able to to do very well without Ignacio Piatti. Uh, it's you know it's it's a little bit up and down. I mean they'll have a good game and then they'll have a poor game, but uh, in what as you mentioned a kind of weak Eastern Conference that's been just enough to keep them you know towards the top end of the table there. And uh, defensively, I think for them as well it's been pretty impressive. I know they've given up a lot of goals, but if we take out the seven that they gave up against uh, <laughs> the Sporting KC in one match, Sporting KC, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit more. Uh, little bit more reasonable from them and we've seen on the road they've been able to to shut down things pretty well and and in the midfield certainly um you know clog things up and and play some again just be a tough team to play against without their top player now that piatti's back um you know certainly they're they're in that conversation a little bit uh definitely for M, for playoff teams in the east and uh maybe if they can start to put things together like they did toward the, the latter half of last season uh in the conversation for the top of the conference as well because it's been pretty rare that we see a montreal team start out this well yeah to me this is just a continuation of what they did last year uh as you mentioned they they ended the season very well uh remy guard came in um not, he cleaned house, but not obviously to the extent that Marco Santos did when we were talking about mm-hmm. Vancouver. But he, you know, he made some changes, uh, both uh, personnel-wise and tactics-wise. Um, there was a, a bit of a struggle, uh, you know, to put it lightly in the, in the, the first half of the, the first season under Remigard. Uh But you could see what what he was trying to do. He was trying to bring some more balance to a call that was very unbalanced. You know, a lot of the. Uh, the uh, it, it was basically for for the impact. It was give the ball to Piatti and see what he does. Mm-hmm. That was that was the strategy, right? Um, and even in the first half of the of last season, it was a lot of that too. While well, Remy Garb was making his changes and, and and trying to instill his his own vision into the team. Uh, but as time went on, you saw that you know there were all of a sudden there was a little more balance to the team, and and and, and other players were starting to come to the forefront, and they were taking pressure off of Piatti. But on top of that, they were also playing better defensively. And as you mentioned, you take away that, that 7-0 destruction, it's just an outlier. Uh, I think that was a very angry sporting KC side that, that week because they, they were just coming off uh, being blown out of the CCL. Right. Um, you take away that, and, and they have been the top, if not the top, one of the top two or three defensive teams in the league. Uh, they are very hard to score against, and it's not just coming down to one or two defenders. They don't really have stud defenders uh, that you can really say, like, well, you know, you take this guy out and, and, and the whole thing falls apart. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very much a team effort. Uh, you know, obviously there are, there are key pieces, uh, you know, uh, but it, it's, it's, to me, just the fact that they have a more balanced attack and a more balanced, able, a more balanced team all up and down, one through 11 uh, in their lineup helps the defensive shape as well. So the fact that you know the ball is not always going to go to the left, Ignacio Piatti, sometimes it's going to go to the right, sometimes it's going to go to the middle. You know, that they're going to use uh, Maximiliano Rucci or Cuanco, whoever the case might be. It's not just going to be, let's flip it to Piatti and, and, and hope that he does some magic. Um, 
teams have to shift around now and that throws them off and, and that allows Montreal to stay in a, a better defensive shape as well as, as attack better. So to me, it, it's a lot of credit goes to Remy Garden in, in implementing his vision uh, with a, in a team that's not full of stars. Um, a, a team full of good good players but not full of stars. Uh, yeah. I'd say Piatti is probably the only one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that they are built... To, you know, if you lose a player, you can still succeed. As obviously, if you lose a player, the Piatti is still succeeding. Um, and to me, that bodes well for them going forward. And uh, honestly, I, I feel like they are definitely going to be in the playoffs. Um, maybe they don't have the talent to uh, to challenge an Atlanta United for the top of the, the East. So I think at the end of the year, Atlanta's going to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, second through fourth is, is up for grabs. So uh, to me, they're definitely one of the teams that can do that. Yeah, and for Canadian men's national team fans, Zachary Brogiard, who's on loan from Lyon, oh, yeah. had a very solid season. Uh, he's been a big part of that defensive transformation mm-hmm. for the from the impact and uh, has a lot of skill going forward as well. So I think if we're looking towards the Gold Cup, uh, the right back's been Canada's big issue over the past couple of years, and I think uh, we we have a bit of a solution there in Zachary Brogiard, which is, is pretty exciting. Uh, certainly the defense as a whole there's still a lot of questions for Canada but at least that's one of them that seems better answered so uh, definitely a player to watch if if you're going to tune into some MLS uh, you know over the next couple of weeks is Zachary Brogiard um, we're going to wrap things up this week though on the show there uh, Rudy it's uh, it's been a pleasure having you on oh anytime I, I love talking about this stuff so <laughs> as you can tell so uh, yeah anytime you want back I'll, I'll be back yeah, absolutely. I love talking about it as well. Uh, so, yeah, always great to, to have you on. And for the rest of you, uh, don't forget to RSVP for the Footy Talks Champions League final party on June 1st at the Rec Room with TSN's Christian Jack and Stephen Caldwell. Uh, space is filling up pretty quickly, so head over to homestandsports.com events to get your tickets now. Otherwise, thanks for listening and enjoy your weekend.